Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Joseph Horowitz, author of the new book, The Propaganda of Freedom, JFK, Shostakovich, Stravinsky and the Cultural Cold War. Uh, Joe, welcome back to Bookstack. Well, Richard, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And congratulations uh, on the new book. So what was The Propaganda of Freedom? So I became aware of what I call the propaganda of freedom when I went to an event at the National Archives in D.C. It celebrated the Kennedy White House as a haven for the arts. There was talk about how he hosted Pablo Casals, how he hosted Igor Stravinsky. And then someone read excerpts from a rather famous speech that Kennedy gave at Amherst College in 1963, a few weeks before he was assassinated. And I was absolutely flabbergasted to discover that here he was claiming that only free artists in free societies create great art. And everybody knows that that's not true. So this stuck in my head for a very long time. And it was always my intention to try to figure out why he said that. Did he actually believe it? Uh, Where does it come from? And ultimately, I had the opportunity to connect the dots. So the propaganda of freedom, which was a core ideological tenet of the cultural Cold War as prosecuted by the United States of America, is traceable to the polemics of Igor Stravinsky in France. And how did I get to Stravinsky? Well, briefly, first of all, I discovered that this very, very strange speech which is at the same time, the Kennedy speech, very, very uplifting and eloquent. It's a wonderful statement, which we would never hear from an American president today about the importance of the arts in the American national experience or the importance of arts generally for any nation. Who wrote it? Well, your guy, the guy who you wrote a book about. It's written by Arthur Schlesinger. That's the first thing I discovered when I went to the archives at the Kennedy Library. I also discovered that Kennedy made one substantial change. He added an even more implausible claim that all great artists are concerned with social justice, which is nuts. So then I was very curious to know how Arthur Schlesinger, who was a a culturally literate man, could write such a speech for John Kennedy. And I asked you, and uh, ultimately when I read The Vital Center, important book, Here he is citing Nicholas Nabokov as his classical music guy. He's the guy that he goes to when he wants to know about classical music. And this rang a very loud bell because Nabokov was the head, the general secretary of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, covertly founded and funded by the CIA as the major propaganda arm of the United States. And Nabokov absolutely embraced the propaganda of freedom because he had to. He had left his homeland as a, you know, aristocratic Russian intellectual. Here he is wandering Europe and the United States, homeless and a composer. So he has to believe that free artists, unencumbered, autonomous, can create great art and His closest relationship in in music is with Igor Stravinsky. He and Stravinsky are buddies. And he is a man who believes that Igor Stravinsky is the supreme 
classical musician in the 20th century. And Stravinsky, quite infamously or famously, as you wish, wrote these polemics, the Norton Lectures at Harvard, his autobiography, which originated in France, in which he said that music can mean nothing other than itself, and the creative act is wholly autonomous. You, you, can, you can compose, you know, if you're in Antarctica, it doesn't make any difference. And there you are. That's it. That's the propaganda of freedom going from Stravinsky to Nabokov to Schlesinger to the mouth of John F. Kennedy at Amherst College. And, and, and as you say, I mean, going back to that, that uh, Kennedy speech, there, there's a contradiction uh, right at the heart of that, because in many ways, uh, as you said in your, uh, the beginning of your answer there, this is a very uplifting speech about the importance, the centrality uh, of the arts uh, in the life of a nation. Uh, and yet, in, on the other hand, it has this very clear framework uh, locating it uh, in the Cold War. One of the things that you do in the book is that you contrast the American experience with the Russian experience. Uh, tell us a bit about that. What, what did music look like in uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin and then latterly uh, under Khrushchev? Okay, so to begin with, you've got this guy, Nabokov, who despises Dmitry Shostakovich. He considers Shostakovich not only a, a Soviet stooge, but a composer really of no talent. On the face of it, this is a preposterous opinion. And if Nabokov is, is widely remembered for anything, it's for confronting Shostakovich and embarrassing him publicly at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel at the Peace Conference in 1949 in, in New York City, where he publicly asked Shostakovich whether he stood by certain denunciations of Stravinsky and Schoenberg, knowing full well that Shostakovich would have to say yes. So he, he purposely embarrassed him and achieved the result that he saw. Shostakovich, while in New York, was told that he should defect, that he'd be a much more productive and happier composer in the United States. Well, again, this is preposterous. Uh, Shostakovich was in many ways miserable in the Soviet Union, but he was a people's artist and he was more productive, I would say, certainly than Stravinsky was in Los Angeles. So what are the conditions that foster creativity? One of the things in my book, which I discovered researching the book, is an interview that Shostakovich gave to Harrison Salisbury in the New York Times in the 1950s. And Salisbury was very impressed by Shostakovich. Shostakovich said, we're freer than composers in the United States because we have an income, our music is published, our music is performed, we're part of a community, a musical community, whereas in the United States, very materialistic and barbarian country, composers are stranded. And Salisbury, he was happy to report this. The Times was so uncomfortable. These are things you discover when you write a book. The Times, that are priceless. The Times was so uncomfortable with this interview with their own Russian correspondent that they published alongside of it an opinion piece uh, casting aspersion on these claims made by Shostakovich. But in fact, 
in many respects, the arts mattered far more in the Soviet Union than they did in the United States. And we now know there's a book by a, an author named Frolova Walker called Stalin's Music Prize, which opened a lot of eyes. We now have access to the Soviet archives that report on the deliberations for the Stalin Prize. So, you know, if you're in the Soviet Union and you're an artist, you're eligible to get a lot of money from the state, in addition to the money that you're already getting if you win the Stalin Prize. And we had always imagined here in the West many things which were not true about the arts in the Soviet Union. And one of the things that was assumed is that this was a political award that was based on ideological criteria, and it was not. And yet, I mean, it is uh, absolutely undeniable, and you've written about this uh, in other contexts, that somebody like uh, Shostakovich came under almost unbearable uh, political, psychological, emotional pressure uh, from the state. There's the famous story about the about the opera Lady Macbeth, about the Fourth Symphony, and so on. Uh, at, at one stage, Shostakovich talks about thinking that the knock is going to come on the door and he's going to be carted off to prison. But then it turns out that the person who was going to do that had himself been purged. So it's not that you're minimizing the very real repression, but I think you are trying to make the point that there was a, a very rich and artistic life going on um, musically in the Soviet Union. Would that be a fair characterization? Yes, thank you very much. You have a situation here that's got two sides. There's two sides of the coin. There's an underside, which is really ugly. But on top of the coin, if you're talking about classical music, you have a, an integrated musical community. The composers, the performers, the institutions of performance, and the conservatories, these are all the same people. This is all one community. Nothing remotely like this existed in the West. And I'm old enough, having been born in 1948, to have heard the first touring Soviet artists. I heard Oistrakh, and I heard Rostakovich, I heard the Barshai Chamber Orchestra, I heard Gilels when they first came over. And this was a mind-blowing experience. The most memorable experience I had was hearing the Leningrad Philharmonic in 1962. In 1962, Americans didn't know nothing about Yevgeny Mravinsky and the Leningrad Philharmonic, and it was sort of assumed and said that the world's greatest orchestras were in the United States. Well, the world's greatest orchestra was in Leningrad. I know because I heard it. And this was a, an incredible wake-up call for me of a kind that Kennedy never had. He could have because the Leningrad Philharmonic was playing Shostakovich Eighth Symphony in D.C. And even Kennedy, who was conversing with classical music, I mean, Shostakovich's Eighth Symphony performed by Mravinsky and Leningrad Philharmonic for almost anybody would be an overwhelming emotional dose. Uh, this is a symphony that bears witness to World War II. So, yeah, I'm sure there will be people who find my book too soft on the Russians and too hard on the Americans. Really, what's amazing to me writing the book is the degree to which the Americans pursuing these propaganda objectives were naive and misinformed. The, the State Department was afraid, certain people in the State Department were afraid, that if they sent artists to Russia the way Russia was sending artists, performing artists to the United States, they'd be hissed off the stage. 
And uh, the first... Whereas actually, as you, as you show in the book, the reaction when that does happen is very positive, that you have, for example, Balashin and the, the New York City Ballet uh, visit the Soviet Union. Stravinsky makes a very emotional return uh, to Russia. Um, there, are, there are orchestras which uh, toured the Soviet Union as well. Uh, and these kind of become huge cultural and diplomatic events too. Yes. The, the first visit that was arranged under the Cultural Exchange Pact in 58 was Bernstein and the New York Philharmonic. And I have a different view of that than previous accounts based on just going to the archives of the New York Philharmonic. Bernstein was convinced that his concerts were being poorly reviewed because of ideological mandates. And there's a particular review by a guy named Medvedev of Bernstein in, in Moscow, which Bernstein was upset about. And he viewed Medvedev as a, as a hack. So my friend Alexander Taradza, the, the late Alexander Taradza, knew Medvedev. <laughs> he said, one thing about Medvedev is that he was a big jazz enthusiast. Now, if you go and read Medvedev's review, which is not done by people who write about this, the first thing you discover is he considers Bernstein a, a great musician, and he's embarrassed to criticize him. He actually says that. And he says, you know, please excuse me, but I have to give you, you know, my honest opinion. And his honest opinion was, one, Bernstein talked too much and he patronized the audience. Okay, so if you read what Bernstein actually said, also in the New York Philharmonic archives, it is patronizing. So uh, the bottom line here, Richard, is Bernstein got better reviews in Russia than he got in the New York Times. And, and this is something that, you know, took me by surprise, because you will not learn that from any extant accounts of Bernstein's 1959 visit to the Soviet Union. Of course, one of the, the most famous uh, cultural uh, exchanges, if you like, uh, is the story of Van Kleiben. Um, tell, tell us about that, his experience uh, in the Soviet Union and then coming back to the United States. This is absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. So first of all, you've got Kleiben going to 58, Tchaikovsky competition, and he can't even pay his phone bills. He's so poor. And he asked the State Department to cover his expenses, and they say no. Uh, he wins, and he falls in love with Russia, and Russia falls in love with him. He's a visitor at Khrushchev's dacha. He gets to know the Khrushchev kids. He comes to the United States. He meets with Eisenhower, who says, I'm very sorry, I'm going to Camp David this weekend. I can't make it to your concert. And Nixon couldn't make it either. This is his first concert in D.C. after winning the Tchaikovsky competition. So the reception after the concert for Van Cliburn is hosted by the Soviet embassy. That's an anecdote about Cliburn. Many, many, many others, but, and they all are the same topic that the Russians got it and the Americans didn't. I mean, I suppose that that's part of the context of the Kennedy administration trying to um, elevate the place of classical music uh, in American life, isn't it? And you talk about the speech. Uh, you also talk in the book uh, about the famous dinner 
uh, for Stravinsky uh, held at the White House, where he was honoured as this uh, truly great composer. Um, that context that you just explained a minute ago, does that not make your view of Kennedy and what Kennedy was trying to do uh, more positive? Yes, uh, but I could also point out that this invitation partly came about because the Russians had successfully invited Stravinsky to the Soviet Union, and Stravinsky said yes. The invitation to Stravinsky was partly uh, managed by Nicholas Nabokov, who we were talking about before, uh, and Arthur Schlesinger, who we were talking about. Um, and many, many things could be said about this dinner, which I write about at length. And it's the same two-sided coin we were talking about before. There are many evidences of American naivete and cultural innocence attended to this dinner. And at the same time, you have a president for whom the state of the union is partly about the state of the arts. Such a thing is unimaginable today. Uh, all we can do is, is look back at what Kennedy said and think, I mean, the first thing you have to think, regardless of what I've been saying for the past 15 minutes is, wouldn't it be great if we had president for whom the arts mattered as an instrument of national identity and expression. And I suppose that, I mean, that is the thing about the 1960s, that, that it is an amazing period for classical music in the United States, that uh, you've got composers like John Cage and Terry Riley, they'll give way to uh, new composers like um, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, John Adams, and so on. You've got Bernstein in the New York Philharmonic, those so-called big five American orchestras are, are revered all around the world. You've got new arts buildings uh, going up, the Lincoln Center most famously, but then very soon the Arts Center, the, what will become known as the Kennedy Center uh, in Washington. So, so it, is a, it is actually a period of cultural vibrancy for the United States. I think it was shallow. Those orchestras are already in, in grave uh, financial trouble. And the Ford Foundation made a decision that's comparable to a bad diplomatic decision that looked good on the face of it, but had terrible consequences by giving a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars to orchestras so they could expand their seasons and employ their musicians for 52 weeks. They created a situation where orchestras were giving more concerts than they could market. And we're stuck with that situation now. And orchestras today are mainly marketing institutions, not presenting institutions. I, I see that the Boston Symphony is giving concerts with the hall less than half full. Uh, orchestras give too many concerts. What the Ford Foundation should have done was simply increase the rate of payment to those musicians rather than increasing the number of concerts. So I, I think the culture boom of the 60s at least in classical music, was not really a boom. It just looked like it on the surface. And we were already heading down a slippery slope that led us to the present day moment where I, I fear the arts are in crisis in the United States. And we should talk about cultural diplomacy today. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that does lead us to talking about the arts today. We'll come back to cultural diplomacy in a second. But, I mean, did the pandemic have a particularly... 
um, uh, bad effect for classical music? I mean, I suppose in some ways institutions like the New York Philharmonic seem to have emerged stronger from it with a new hall and a new uh, conductor, Gustavo Dudamel, and so on. Yet on the other hand, the wider picture uh, seems to be of uh, orchestras and cultural institutions generally coming increasingly under pressure, many of them actually folding. The pandemic just accelerated the crisis. It didn't create the crisis. The root cause of the crisis, in my opinion, which may not be a popular opinion, is a, a loss of cultural memory. It seems to me that the arts can only thrive where cultural memory is sustained, whether you're talking about the audience or the creative artists themselves. And we live in a culture which has no memory, partly because of social media. You know, we both have children, young people today, they live in the present. If the arts can thrive in the absence of cultural memory, that would be something new under the sun. We've never seen anything like that happen before. It's logically possible, but I'm skeptical that it's actually feasible. And you did, um, you published a, a manifesto for the, for the arts uh, quite recently. And, you know, I think that one of the things that uh, you have constantly talked about is the need for a more directed state uh, government agency uh, when it comes to uh, the arts, whether that's kind of something uh, akin to the BBC, for example, in, in the UK, uh, or perhaps uh, something uh, that is a national council for the arts with real teeth and real uh, finances behind it. So this brings us back to Kennedy, and it also brings us to the afterword to my book, which I wrote in the wake of the pandemic, whereas the book was mainly written before the pandemic. And in my afterword, I, I make a case, however implausible, that we need really a, a much, much higher level of, of government funding than we've ever seen in the United States. So Kennedy, again, is the two-sided coin. A little-known fact, which I discovered writing the book, is that the day he was assassinated, the first morning edition of the New York Times had a scoop. And the scoop was that Richard Goodwin was about to be named the president's advisor on the arts. And Goodwin was an activist. He was an insider to the Kennedy circle. Uh, this would have been a very big deal. It wasn't what Mrs. Kennedy wanted, which was a cultural ministry, but it could have led to that. Uh, but once the assassination occurred, that, that story was dropped from subsequent editions of the New York Times that day. On the other hand, Kennedy opposed art subsidies. And the reason he opposed art subsidies was the propaganda of freedom. He believed the artist needs to be independent. And there's a legacy there, which I think hampers us to this day in advocating for government support of the arts. Even in the arts community, I find people who say, we don't want government money because it will shackle us. Well, okay, we can starve. Uh, I think it's better than starvation. So yeah, I think there's no political will. There's not even any prominent spokesperson for the arts in Washington, D.C. But we're at a moment where I think we urgently need a much, much higher level of government support for the arts in the United States. 
And 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 what do you make of those efforts at cultural diplomacy that uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra uh, announced quite recently that it would be returning to China? Uh, I think at, at at one stage the New York Philharmonic Orchestra maybe even went to North Korea. Um, so there have been these efforts at orchestral diplomacy that very much build on that Cold War idea that you've written about in the book. How successful do you think they are today? So, Richard, as you know, I produce programming for NPR for the 1A news magazine called More Than Music. And my next More Than Music show on October 16 is called The Cultural Cold War Revisited. The last component of that program looks at cultural diplomacy in Africa today. I was very fortunate to be introduced to Alexander Lascaris, a wonderful man who's the ambassador to Chad, the U.S. ambassador to Chad, formerly U.S. ambassador to Guinea. This is through Sydney Outlaw, an African-American baritone, wonderful artist whom I know and whom Alexander Lascaris knows. And so Lascaris recently brought Sydney to Chad. Sydney had an unforgettable experience. And I got audio from the ambassador of Sydney singing to Chad Fisherman on an island. And when he learned that they hauled nets, he sang the fisherman song from Porgy and Bess. And they in turn sang for him their song for hauling nets. And to, to make a long story short, the Scaris will tell you, as will Sydney, that this was a very effective instrument for American diplomacy in a continent where we're vying for influence in competition with China. Yes, the Philadelphia Orchestra has been going to China constantly since the 1970s. This began because Eugene Ormandy, the conductor of the orchestra, knew Richard Nixon. And Nixon, you know, played the piano. And he knew a thing or two about classical music. And the Philadelphia Orchestra has been going to China ever since. Uh, the upcoming trip is with a relatively small contingent of musicians. And Matthias Tarnopolsky, the president of the Philadelphia Orchestra, eloquently testifies to the impact of cultural diplomacy, even in situations where all other means of communication are in collapse. So, yeah. I think there's a role for cultural diplomacy right now beyond what has been undertaken. Uh, if you look back at the 60s, when cultural diplomacy was at its height, and by the way, cultural diplomacy waned with the waning of the Cold War. That's a big theme in my book, which I developed at great length. But you know, the bottom line is, when the Cold War waned, the State Department decided that cultural diplomacy was less important. My pipe dream right now is that the William Levy Dawson Negro Folk Symphony from 1932, one of the most formidable American symphonies, which begins with a movement called the Bond to Africa, and which is partly based on the composer's visit to Africa in the 50s, and which treats Africa as a launching base for what became African-American music. My pipe dream is that an American orchestra, say the Gateways Orchestra, which is all African-American, might take the Dawson Symphony to Africa. I asked Sidney Outlaw, what do you think? And of course, Sidney said, it would be mind-blowing. 
in places like Chad and Guinea for an American orchestra to come under the auspices of the U.S. State Department and perform Dawson's Negro Folk Symphony. But just as the arts have receded from the American experience, you're less and less likely to find an ambassador who's deeply conversant in the arts. Lascaris is. Most will not be. This is a change. I mean, one of the people who uh, I've talked to at length is John Byerly, the former U.S. ambassador to Russia. And Byerly was a protege of Arthur Hartman, a legendary diplomat who was a magnificent practitioner of cultural diplomacy when he was ambassador to Russia and brought Vladimir Horowitz to Russia. Um, that's another story. When, when, uh, and this was a big deal. You know, Reagan gave Horowitz the Medal of Freedom. It definitely impacted in a rather uh, remarkable way. And it, it only happened because of Hartman. And Hartman discovered, we're now in the 1980s, that there was no real interest at the State Department supporting this visit of Vladimir Horowitz, the most famous Russian pianist who left Russia in the 1920s. This return, very, very unforeseen and startling, Horowitz to Russia, the State Department passed on that. But Hartman was able to raise money himself. So this is a bigger and very complicated picture. And uh, I just hope moving forward that this legacy of cultural diplomacy beginning as far as Russia is concerned with Bernstein's very, very impactful trip in 1959 can be renewed. So the book is The Propaganda of Freedom, JFK, Shostakovich, Stravinsky, and the Cultural Cold War. It's written by my guest, Joseph Horowitz, and it's published by the University of Illinois Press. Uh, but for now, Joe, always a pleasure. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Oh, thank you, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman, and this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thank you.